you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. Yo, what's up, Sober Guy family? Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks to humans for bringing us in, and thank you for supporting the show. This is Seth Manter, and you are listening to the Tuesday episode of Sober Guy Radio. On today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Mendelson. Dr. Mendelson is a professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology who is now retired and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He has authored or co-authored four books and numerous scientific papers, primarily in the fields of psychopharmacology and sleep medicine. His most recent book, Understanding Antidepressants, was written with the intention of providing the scientific background of antidepressants in a non-technical and very readable manner. Uh, really looking forward to talking with Dr. Mendelson today. But before we get to Dr. Mendelson, be sure to check us out at www.thatsoberguy.com. There's a bunch of resources there. You could check out all of our past episodes. You could also get information on upcoming live shows and events. And one last thing, if you feel so inclined, you could hit me up at seth at that You could also find me on Instagram at soberguy.com. Seth. Dr. Mendelson, how are you doing tonight? It's an honor to have you on the show. Well, hi, Seth. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I was I was really delighted when you guys reached out to that sober guy for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons, you know, we get a lot of we get a lot of uh, people that reach out to us asking about certain prescriptions, uh, antidepressants being a huge one. Um, you know, and obviously we're not uh, experts in the field. So I was super, super excited uh, when I got that email. For me, when I first got out of treatment, it was recommended to me to to get on on some antidepressants. And, and I was very, very hesitant to do that for, for a couple of reasons, just because I didn't really know how they would affect the body, what they would do for me if I would become addicted to them. So the question I, first question I have for you, Dr. Mendelson, is uh, what effects do antidepressants have on our natural ability to deal or overcome with, you know, the things that life throws at us, or are we born with that ability? Well, I guess what you could say is that uh, antidepressants have a, several very specific uses. Uh, the main one, and the one we're here to talk about today, is to treat an illness known as um, major depressive disorder. Uh, they're really not drugs for uh, unhappiness, you know, in the sense of being unhappy with the slings and arrows of fate, you know, and the things that are part of the human condition. They're, they're for a kind of illness that has many features. It includes uh, depressed mood, which is what it's named after, it also uh, fatigue. It can affect uh, your thinking processes. Uh, it, it can result in feelings of worthlessness uh, or hopelessness. Uh, there can be body bodily complaints like aches or pains. Uh, a whole variety of things. So what I would emphasize is antidepressants uh, are really for depression, and, and I would distinguish that from. Uh, from unhappiness, because that's that's not the goal of giving these drugs. Uh, drug, the purpose is to treat depression. Now, they also some antidepressants are also marketed for some other purposes too. For uh, for instance, uh, some are marketed for eating disorders, anxiety states, and obsessive compulsive disorder. 
but uh, the core function is to treat major depressive disorder. Uh, let me add, though, that uh, I think we'll probably talk about this later, but it's important to remember that antidepressant medicine isn't the only way to treat major depression. There are um, psychotherapies, which we can talk about. There's something called TMS, um, which involves a magnetic currents um, and some other procedures. So the first thing to know about being depressed is that Antidepressants are only one of several kinds of treatment choices that a person has. Yeah, I, Dr. Mendelson, I absolutely love that you bring up, you know, it's an antidepressant isn't, um, you know, for the surface level, quote unquote, happiness. It's for a, a serious, uh, if you will, um, you know, mental state, right, that you refer to as, you know, mis major depressive disorder, um, or depressed mo uh, mood. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about what maybe some of those signs of the the major depressive disorder is, or what that kind of looks like? Well, sure. Uh, and let me begin with by saying that it's very common. About 16 million Americans experience major depression every year. Uh, and again, the important thing is to remember is that it's a constellation of symptoms and problems. It's not just blue mood, blue mood. Um, in addition to depressed mood, it's, it's the other kinds of things that we mentioned, the kind of depressed thinking, uh, feelings that things are hopeless or helpless, uh, sometimes uh, in more severe cases, self-destructive thoughts. Uh, bodily concerns uh, um, such as aches and pains. Uh, uh, there are changes in some of the body's hormones, uh, such as cortisol, which is used in stress responses. Um, there's an, a decrease in what they call neuroplasticity, which means the the ability of the brain to to respond to new stresses and new situations. So it's a group of things happening together in order to have major depressive disorders. And, and as you say, we distinguish that from unhappiness because, you know, uh, unhappiness is a common experience and part of the human condition. And it, it's not, at least in my mind, uh, a target of antidepressant medicines. Yeah, no, you, you bring up a, you bring up a great point. Um, in that too, you know, that it's not, it's not, it's not uncommon, right? Um, with the numbers that you're throwing out there that it affects 16 million Americans on average. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's something that's fairly, fairly common in that um, what I, what I like to bring to light is that someone that is um, diagnosed as such or needing set, uh, said um, medications or treatments or whatever, um, they're not alone. There's, you know, millions of other people out there that suffer from that. Um, and I, you know, I love that you, that you bring that to light. So, um, and then, so you talk about, you talk about the brain. So can you talk about the effects that antidepressants have on the brain once they've been uh, prescribed? Absolutely. Well, it really goes back to the way that uh, scientists think uh, of what's happening in depression. There's been a lot of thought since, I guess, beginning in the 1950s or 60s, that there was a, quote, chemical imbalance. And by this, what was meant was that some chemicals in the brain, they're called neurotransmitters, which is just a fancy word for meaning that they're what help nerve cells communicate with other nerve cells. Uh, that there could be deficiencies in these chemicals. And it turns out that what many antidepressants do is uh, change the level of these chemicals. They have names like serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine. Now, that's well and good, and they clearly do that. But as the years went on, we found that this really wasn't a 
a fully adequate explanation. And the reason is that most of these drugs straighten out the levels of these chemicals within a day or two. But as, as most of us know from our own experience, when you take an antidepressant, uh, it usually doesn't help with your mood problems for at least a couple of weeks and usually longer than that. So that, that made scientists think, well, there must be something else going on too. And one idea that is developed is that in depression, the brain has less what they call plasticity. And again, what that means is the ability to make new connections and new combinations of nerve cells in response to uh, new and stressful situations. So a person with depression is less well able to deal with stresses. And it turns out that one thing that antidepressants do is they stimulate a kind of chemicals that are called nerve growth factors that increase plasticity in the brain. And so they make the brain more, more agile and able to change with changing situations. And that's a very sort of major theme right now. And that this is an important thing that, that antidepressants do. So the way to think of it is um, uh, straightening out this chemical imbalance may be like putting gas in your car. If, if a car's tank is empty, it's not going to run. But that may be that after you have a full tank, uh, the car still doesn't run right. That may have been only the first problem. And the second and more complicated problems may be these ones involving plasticity. So some people say that instead of thinking of it as putting gas in your tank, the better analogy is you're feeding uh, nutrients to a plant. You know, it takes time for the nutrients to go to work and help change the the way the plant operates. Yeah, no, I uh, I greatly appreciate I appreciate that explanation. It's so funny. Um, you know, my mom always used to tell me, ah, you know, Seth. Seth was kind of just born with this chemical imbalance, right? And I, kind of, I, I love that you kind of debunked that uh, saying, right? That, you know, maybe it wasn't just a chemical imbalance that was going on in my head or in my life, but there was, there was something more that I needed. So antidepressants, um, what are, what are the, the benefits and some of the limitations um, to, to the person that they're prescribed to? And then, you know... A bigger question, like, do they really do they really work? Is this something that's helping people out there? Well, that's a great question. Um, the answer to do they help, I can give you a pretty good response. There, there was just recently a huge review of all the scientific studies in the literature that met some basic criteria for being good quality. And what it found is that uh, essentially all marketed antidepressants were effective. Now, the interesting thing is that although there is some small differences in effectiveness between them, uh, the general range is, is roughly the same. And for that reason, uh, doctors very often choose an antidepressant for their patient based not so much on whether it works better because they all seem to work roughly the same, but rather choose an antidepressant based on the side effect profile. Uh, and this is an important thing to, to understand. Uh, to give you an example, uh, some antidepressants uh, make you a little bit anxious during the process of helping your depression. Well, obviously that wouldn't be a good choice for somebody who's real anxious to start with. Um, another example might be um, some antidepressants uh, can make you sleepy, at least initially. Well, somebody for whom being super alert is important, that's probably not the best drug to choose. So, so a lot of the choices about finding the best antidepressant have to do not so much with uh, the relative effectiveness, but rather on 
finding a, a, the most side effect profile that's best for that individual. Uh, I guess continuing on, uh, the other question is, yes, they work, which means that, that doctors have found that uh, compared to people who are taking a sugar pill or a placebo, that they get better in terms of mood, in terms of their thinking, in terms of energy and other features. But it's, it's very, very important to also understand their limitations. And, and, and the important limitation is that they're not magic. You know, they're, they're medicines that help and generally do help. Uh, but there's a tendency, since the suffering of depression is so real, there's a tendency to hope for an almost magic uh, sudden cure. And, and that's, that's not so likely to happen. What is likely to happen when you use antidepressants is that uh, you'll start with one. If that particular one doesn't do the job after a few weeks, what, you, know, you can consider changing dose or changing medicines. And then every time this is done, there's a higher percentage of, uh, of improvement. So that ultimately, if, if you go through several trials over a period of time, the chances are very good, somewhere in the area of 70 or 80%, that you're going to feel a lot better. But it is not likely that it's going to be the first dose of the first medicine. So a very, very important thing to remember is uh, that you have to have patience and have to work with the doctor. It's not as easy as just being given a prescription. Uh, another very important limitation uh, has to do with what's going on in your life. Um, if a person has all sorts of bad things happening to them or you know, a major conflict or trouble at work or so on, it's not realistic that suddenly taking a medicine, you're going to feel just fine. Uh, the natural response to a really rough situation is, is in fact, uh, you know, to be unhappy. So it's asking too much of a medicine to, to make you feel a whole lot better if you, if you have some very difficult events going on in your life. For the, what, it, what it is reasonable to ask of a medicine is to help you have a little more strength and a little more self-confidence and flexibility in dealing with the situation. But the reason I mention troubles in your life is that what that means to me is that very often taking an antidepressant alone doesn't do the job. Very often it's important to work with a therapist to deal with the issues that are going on in your life. Because the medicine isn't going to change those, but therapy might. Yeah, um, I, I if if you don't mind, I'll just I just want to interrupt. You bring up you bring up a couple really, really um great point talking points there. Um number one that I really love and um, you know, Dr. Mendelson, I know that you're not an addiction uh, expert, you're not a recovery expert, and I just want to bring that to light right now. But one thing, you know, that um, the majority of us that suffer with alcoholism or addiction to drugs, addiction to gambling, eating, whatever the addiction to be, is that we seek um, instant gratification. And I think, you know, when I was prescribed um, some antidepressants, and I'll just be open and honest right now, like I was prescribed them and I didn't, I didn't take them. Um, and it took, um, it took a very long time, um, you know, through, through working with my therapist, um, doing some other, other therapies for me to kind of um, come out of that depressive state. So I absolutely love that you bring up that number one, um, it's not an instant gratifier. Like there's, there's additional work, um, patients being one of them that need to take place in order to kind of coexist, uh, or, or work hand to hand with the prescribed, um, antidepressant, you know, and, and, and going along with that, right? Like, as you, as you're talking, you know, there's, there's additional things, 
um, that could be sought, you know, with, with the therapist, uh, working with the therapist, um, you know, there's, there's, there's other methods out there, uh, that we're, that we're definitely going to, that we're going to get into, but, you know, with, with the patients that you talk about, um, working with, working with a doctor, working with a therapist, uh, working even with, you know, with the support group, it, it adds to the benefits of, of the antidepressant, right? And so, so what I want to, what I want to touch on a little bit, um, is, with with all those things in play, and I know this is going to be kind of the the golden question for you, Doctor Mendelson. I know it's going to be hard for you to answer, um, but so how long, you know, if if one is working with the therapist and and doing, you know, doing everything that's prescribed, and I know people are different. What what's the average like time frame that people are usually seeing once they see the shift or once they realize that the prescribed antidepressant begins to work? Well, it can be it can be some months. Uh, again, if you're started on a new medicine, uh, it's it's likely that uh, you need to wait three or four weeks to see whether it's it's helping. Uh, it's only at the roughly three or four week point that you know you should you should go in and consider uh, either a change in dose or a change in medicine. And then the new medicine may take three or four weeks. Uh, it's an ongoing process. It's not not something that happens quickly. And as you say, it, it flies in the face of a of a um, of a desire for instant gratification. And uh, and I would also add, it's also understandable to some degree. This is a terrible kind of suffering to be depressed, and it's. It's only natural, even though it's not realistic, to want instant action. Um, the, the other thing I'd, I'd like to add, though, uh, just to speak of alcohol specifically, um, one important thing that, that is not always mentioned is that if if you've had a lot of alcohol troubles and now you're sober, even though you're sober, there are chemical changes in your brain that the alcohol has caused <clears throat> that can go on for a long time. Uh, additionally, uh, sleep can be disturbed for up to two years after you're sober. So it's important to remember that um, one yet one more consequence of having difficulties with alcohol can be changes in your in your brain and your sleep, which which last a, a long time. Uh, a second thing I would add is, again, using the example of alcohol, chances are the person who's been drinking, uh, even though they're now sober or recent or even recently sober it's very likely that, that the time with the alcohol has caused all sorts of troubles. It might have led to the separation or divorce. It may be resulted in trouble at work or even being fired. Uh, you know, a whole multitude of kind of troubles. So you, it's, it's not realistic to expect an antidepressant to deal with all of those things. It's much more reasonable to to use an antidepressant in combination with working with a therapist who can address all these other kinds of issues and the hope is that taking the antidepressant will help but it'll help in the sense of making you more flexible uh, less um, pessimistic have more energy to face these stresses and so on but it it can't by itself the antidepressant can't make these these things go away yeah for sure that's a that's a really really good point um you know i've 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 talked with um quite a bit of people in recovery i'm in recovery myself um and it's 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 important that you bring up that you know the antidepressant is not just the end all be all right it's that additional tool um, for lack of a better term, that you could throw into your toolbox that you could put to work 
um, to help that path of, of recovery, whether it be, you know, from depression, anxiety, um, alcoholism, drug addiction, it's, 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 it's just a tool. It's not, it's not the end all be all. Um, Dr. Mendelson, if you don't mind, you, you, uh, brought up a really good point on, um, and, and if this is something that you don't want to talk about, let's just, just say it. Um, the effects of, you know, drinking a bunch of alcohol and then getting sober has some effects on the sleep. Do you mind touching on that? Like, how does, how does that change or that shift affect our sleep uh, patterns? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Well, let, let's move beyond the, the immediate uh, withdrawal period because the, the immediate withdrawal period, you know, is a complicated thing with, with can have a number of syndromes uh, like alcoholic hallucinosis that, by the way, uh, can be associated with greatly increased amounts of rapid eye movement or REM sleep. And uh, things like that. Let's move beyond, you know, immediate withdrawal and talk about sleep, you know, in the weeks after one has become sober, weeks and months. There is a number of things that can happen. Um, sleep is disturbed in the sense there can be multiple awakenings that can take longer to fall asleep. Uh, the amount of deep sleep, which the, what they call slow wave sleep, is greatly decreased and in fact it's the, these amounts of this very deep restful slow wave sleep that stay low and only return to normal after uh, a couple of years uh, i guess the other comment i'd make about sleep is um, let's begin by talking about what alcohol does to a person who isn't you know isn't drinking excessively then we'll move on to somebody who is. For a person who's not excessively using alcohol, uh, it can help you go off to sleep more quickly. The problem is that you have a, it's, it's broken down by the body so quickly that you have a kind of mini withdrawal syndrome the same night that you take it. So even though it may help you go off to sleep, uh, you pay the price in the second half of the night where you, you have multiple awakenings and your sleep is very disturbed. So oral alcohol is not a, a good way to help you sleep. Now, let's change from a person who's not excessively using alcohol to somebody who is. Very, very often, you know, part of uh, the picture of excessive alcohol use is sleep disturbance. And uh, a lot of people who who use alcohol too much say, "Well, I've got to I've got to take a drink so I can sleep." Well, in a very very short term sense, it will help. It might help you go off to sleep uh, on that one individual night, although you'll have trouble in the second half. But in the long term, it's the worst possible thing that you could do because in the long term it perpetuates this extremely disturbed sleep. So it, it is not good to use the rationale of, well, I need to take a drink in order to sleep. You may get a tiny bit of help for that one single night, but you'll pay a terrible price of having an ongoing difficulty that just continues and gets much worse. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's so funny, right? Because, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I always thought that my drinking and drugging did for me was it helped me, it helped me sleep. Right. Um, come to find out I was a horrible sleeper. Right. And you have kind of, uh, given some insight into why that may have been, you know, probably the excessive amounts of alcohol and drugs that I was using in my life. But it wasn't until maybe year two um, that I really, after all of the alcohol and drugs had been, you know, completely eliminated out of my body, out of the diet, um, that I really realized, you know, that the length of my sleep periods um, kind of shortened, but the, the, I felt so much more rested 
and ready to go the next day. So for example, in my drinking days, you know, I would probably sleep or be in bed tossing and turning eight to nine hours a night. Um, after I had gotten sober and after all of that alcohol is alcohol left my body, um, you know, a, a good night of sleep, six hours and, and ready to go felt, uh, well, well rested. Um, so is that something that's uncommon that, you know, maybe the sleep periods, uh, may shorten, but the, the, the quality of sleep improves. Well, everybody of course is different, but some people describe it that way. And the hope is certainly in the long term, sleep will get better. It's just important to know that it may, that it may take time. Uh, I think one way to think about it is is once you're once you're sober, there's a there's a tendency to I guess you'd say to to have denial. You say, well, you know, I used to drink heavily, but that's behind me now. I'm sober now, and that can very easily slip into the denial. And the reason I say that is. A person in this position has to remember that even though they're sober and they've even been sober for some weeks or longer, that their body has had changes to it due to the alcohol, and that you can't deny that these are there. They are there, and they are going to get better with time. But you do have to have some patience and some perseverance to to hang in there while that kind of healing process goes on. Yeah, no, Dr. Mendelson, I thank you. Thank you so much for that little gem and insight into your, um, your, your expertise in the, in the field of sleeping. I, I absolutely love that. I want to get us, um, you know, and the, and the way that I kind of roll sometimes, man, is I get off track, but we're going to get back on track talking about the antidepressants, um, so talking about, you know, benefits, limitations, talking a little bit about, um, you know, the time periods, how long it may take until we see change. So what guidance can you provide um, to the listener out there if, if um, they realize that their mind state is not improving after the, using the prescribed antidepressants for six, eight, seven weeks? What are some, what are some other things that could be done? Well, if things are not getting better uh, and you've tried a, a medicine or at different doses, maybe more than one medicine, and things just certainly aren't improving, uh, it's an opportunity in a way to go back and rethink the whole situation. So what I usually tell folks is let's not rush to jump to new medicines or new doses. Let's stop and regroup and think things through. Now, what I mean by this is, for instance, you should go back to the beginning and wonder whether uh, the depression is related to uh, uh, other illnesses. You know, there, there's a number of kinds of medical illnesses uh, that can uh, cause depressed mood. So certainly one important thing would be to make sure that your doctor is considered any other kind of illnesses that you may have. Um, another important one is to uh, think about all the other medicines that you may be taking for, for other purposes, not having anything to do with mood, just general medical medicines. There are, there are many, many medicines that uh, can affect one's mood, and it's, it's important to review those with your doctor. Uh, another one to consider if you're not getting better is there are some sleep disorders that when they occur can make it very hard to get better in depression. And the main one that I'm thinking of is called obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, Apnea is just a fancy word for ceasing to breathe. And what sleep apnea is in its most basic form is somebody who breathes just fine uh, during the daytime, but when they go to sleep, they have periods where they're um, 
upper airway in their throat becomes blocked and they stop breathing. Uh, then the, what happens then is that your blood carbon dioxide and oxygen change and a reflex wakes you up and then you start breathing again and go back to sleep. And this can happen from a few to dozens or even hundreds of times a night. And the result is feeling that you're waking up tired and not rested, very often sleepy. Uh, it's been found that folks who have untreated sleep apnea have a very, very hard time getting better with depression. And so very often the same patient who was not getting better with antidepressants is found to have sleep apnea. The, the sleep apnea is treated by the sleep doctor and suddenly the depression starts getting better. So looking for sleep disorders is yet another thing um, uh, that one can do. Uh, yeah, so that's 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 a that's an interesting point. Um, you know, you you talk about the sleep apnea. Um, what are what are some other conditions? I mean, if you wouldn't mind talking about, like, what are some other conditions that could lead or or kind of masquerade um, or lead someone up to depression? So you talked about you know um, sleep apnea. And then talking with your doctor and making sure all those other conditions are treated. Can you just give a couple of examples of what, what some of those conditions might be or what they might look like? Well, sure. Um, we talked about sleep disorders, and it's not only sleep, obstructive sleep apnea, but also what's known as restless leg syndrome. Um, some infections are associated with depressive symptoms, Lyme's disease. Uh, uh, syphilis, um, AIDS for that infectious hepatitis, um, nervous system disorders like Parkinson's disease, um, hormone disorders like hypothyroidism, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, some kind of cancers, uh, anemia. Uh, chronic uh, pain conditions. There's a whole lot of illnesses that can result in depressive symptoms, and that's why it's so important to to have a make have a doctor make sure that you don't have any other conditions. Because if, if you have one of those, uh, using the example of obstructive sleep apnea, it makes it much much harder to uh, to have an effective treatment for your depression. Um, I guess the second thing I have a feeling you're likely to ask me is what about medicines that can cause depressive symptoms? Well, medicines just from the whole range of medical care can do it. Um, there, there's a, <coughs> med, a, a medicine for gastric secretion called metoclopramide. Um, some steroids like prednisone, even occasionally birth control pills, uh, cortisone can do that. Um, some blood pressure medicines, um, some medicines for Parkinson's disease. Uh, uh, interestingly, uh, anti-anxiety medicines uh, like Librium and Valium and medicines in that family can uh, certainly help with anxiety, but can also make depression worse. So it's really important if you're not getting better, that again, as I say, a step back, go back to the very beginning and think about these other possible causes for depression. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Dr. Mendelson. I think it's, um, you know, super important uh, for the listener out there to understand that, you know, Depression, it's not a personal attack on your mental mind state, right? It could be a symptom of uh, medications that you're, that you're taking. It could be a symptom of a pre-existing or new medical condition. And just because one uh, may be diagnosed as, as depressed or one may be feeling quote unquote depressed, um, it's, not, it's not a personal attack, like I say, on your, on your current mind state. And I, I appreciate you um, kind of bringing that to light for 
number one, me, myself, right? Um, and then, you know, the listeners out there. Um, so, so thank you for that. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about some alternatives uh, to prescribed antidepressants, including psychotherapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, can we talk a little bit about that and just kind of, I, I have no idea what either one of those is. So uh, if you could, you know, even break it down to a real elementary level, um, that would be much appreciated because there's a lot of us out there uh, that suffer from, 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 you know, drug and alcohol abuse that if, you know, for, for me, my problem was being prescribed something like that scared me right away coming out of sobriety. So I think a lot of the alternative methods, um, you know, might, might be helpful to, to the person out there that suffers. Well, absolutely. Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to remember that antidepressant medicine is only one route uh, to go in dealing with depression. And a very, very important alternative is psychotherapy or talking therapies that don't involve using medicines. Uh, there are two um, major ones that have been shown to help with depression, and they help just as much as medicines do in mild and moderate depressions. And in very, very severe depressions, medicines still have a bit of an edge. But in up to that point, they're, they're equally effective. And they also are not necessarily alternatives. They can be used in combination with medicine, um, as we mentioned. Now, the first of these is called cognitive behavioral uh, therapy or CBT. And the idea behind CBT <coughs> is that depression is messed with your thinking. That among the many things that it affects are the uh, your beliefs and your attitudes and accepting things too quickly that may not be entirely accurate. And that CBT is oriented around going through things like that. It's not a long-term kind of procedure. You know, people hear about psychotherapy and they say, oh my gosh, you know, this is uh, something like psychoanalysis where I go four or five times a week for years. It's nothing like that at all. CBT is usually done in, uh, depending on who's doing it and so on, six, eight, 10 sessions over a period of two or three months. It is not a long super long-term commitment. Um, the other kind of therapy that's been shown to be just as good as antidepressants in mild to moderate illness is called interpersonal therapy. And this is a kind of therapy that focuses on your relationship with other people and tries to help you straighten out your uh, what's going on and the way you relate to uh, folks that are important in your life. Again, although this can be long-term, uh, it's very often not, and can be a very, very effective kind of treatment. And as we talked earlier, uh, I just want to emphasize th these are not all just alternatives. These can be used in combination with medicine. And I, I can't speak highly enough of, of how useful uh, uh, CBT and interpersonal therapy can be. Um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, you know, to, to keep that, keep that reminder out there, right? All of these methods that you're talking about tonight, um, they're just added tools that we could put in our toolbox, the, you know, the medications, the therapies, um, it's not there and, and they're not end all be alls by themselves. Right. But when added together with, um, with each other, right. They're, they're most effective. I mean, that's, that's kind of where you're getting at, right? Absolutely. You said, you said it beautifully. So getting back to the, um, the CBT, um, the, we're, we were talking about how the depression affects the thinking, 
Can you kind of go back on that and maybe talk, talk a little bit more on, on that? Well, sure. Um, again, my expertise is more with the medicine and the things than therapy, but, but to give you an example, um, <clears throat> a lot of folks who are depressed, uh, when they're faced with a cup half full or half empty, they've always, they always lean toward the empty side. Um, they, they can have feelings of guilt where they really needn't have feelings of guilt and they can dwell and be tortured by feeling guilty about something that they really shouldn't feel so guilty about. Um, I'm just trying to think of examples. I mean, let us say somebody, a student, uh, with depression might make an A on the exam you know, and uh, and be depressed about it. And you say, well, why are you depressed? And you say, well, it wasn't an A plus, you know, or something like that. Well, the fact is an A is an A. It looks pretty good for most folks. Yeah, no, and I, man, I could attest to that. You know, I, I had an issue with that last night, right? Took a dog, took the dog for a, a good walk. We probably walked three miles, right? And we got home. Um, you know, and I questioned that, right. I was like, man, it was a good walk, but you know, I could have gone a little bit longer. And I think that that's something, um, you know, that, that I still, that I still struggle with today, right. Is questioning my, um, my, um, you know, the things that are good in my life and not, and not being happy with them. And I think there's a lot of people out there that, that struggle with that, right. Is that, that, how, how, uh, affected our thinking has been by some of our, um, the circumstances that are in our life, whether it be depression, anxiety, uh, addiction to drugs or alcohol or eating, whatever it is, is that there's a multitude of things, uh, that could cause us to think this way. And then on the reverse side of that, and we've touched on this many times, um, you know, there's not one, just one thing that's going to fix that. It's a multitude, it's a multitude of, of things and, you know, whether it be therapies or medications, whatever it's going to be, um, it's combined together is when they work the best. Um, so what about ketamine, uh, Dr. Mendelstein? What is, what does ketamine, ketamine have to do, um, for the one that, that suffers from depression? Well, that ketamine is a very interesting, uh, topic right now. It's a, New use for an old drug. It's it's a uh, an an intravenous anesthetic, but in recent years it, there have been some studies showing that uh, a, even a single intravenous dose of ketamine can greatly improve depression uh, almost immediately and last for several days. Um, it's given in very, very low doses, sub-anesthetic doses, and a lot of doctors are very excited about it. Um, I, I would mention several cautions. The first is that it's what is called an off-label use. It is not a drug approved by the FDA for this indication at this time. Uh, so doctors are certainly free to do it, but they're, they're doing it in what is called an off-label manner. Uh, the second thing I would mention is my reading of what we're finding with it. This is a complicated area, but my reading of it is that it's not so much that it helps depression as a whole. What it seems to help, and this is remarkable in itself, is suicidal thoughts. The people who are given these very, very low doses of intravenous ketamine by their psychiatrist have an, have an improvement in suicidal thinking very quickly. And it looks to me that ketamine's effects are more related to that a little bit independently of their effects on depression as a whole. The final thing I would say about ketamine is it's not free of side effects itself. It's a very potent drug and it can cause confusional states, hallucinations, and many other things. Um, this is an area where different doctors differ. You'll get a lot of differing opinions, but my own opinion is that 
what's important about ketamine is not that it itself is a terrific new treatment. It, it's plagued by these problems of side effects and so on. But what it's important for is that it's opening up a whole new class of drugs and a whole new kind of therapy. So that now that we know about ketamine, we can look for better drugs that are safer. And maybe as the next few years go by, it's very possible that you'll find that psychiatrists uh, with government approval uh, are, are having drugs in the general class of ketamine to help people with depression. And if so, it would be revolutionary in this one particular way and that the response does occur very, very quickly, unlike all other antidepressants that are on the market. So I view it as sort of an imperfect treatment uh, and not one that I would rush to now, but I view it as a sign of what may be potentially some really exciting new drugs in the near future. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, you you bring up a good point, right? Like, it's it, it sounds like it's one of those things that's kind of still um it's been around for a while but you know for for treatment methods it's kind of still in process right like whether it's being used but we're still kind of testing it out is that is that a correct assumption I think that's right I would not consider it an established treatment and it's not one that I would rush to use but it I, but I mention it because it's a hopeful sign that it, for the first time in some years, we have a new lead on a new class of drugs that, that may hold a whole lot of promise. It, it is not something I would go out and uh, rush to use right now. Yeah. So, and then, so with that being said, um, you know, with the amount of people that suffer from depression, I think we said 16 million at the very beginning of the show. Um, what, what else is out there that's that's kind of in the works that you know um, that's being worked on to you know maybe cure or help in the in, in in bringing that number down from 16 million maybe even down to 10 million? Is there any additional medicines that you know of that are that are in the works that are being experimented on? Um, and if so, is there is there anything that you could bring to light about those? Well, I, I'm not sure about other medicines, but I do want to tell you about a very interesting non-medicine treatment. It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. And TMS is a treatment in which you go and sit in a kind of a dental chair, and then they, they put uh, electromagnets next to your head, and then cause, you know, magnetism to go through your, uh, into your brain. And it turns out that in people who have not done well with antidepressants, uh, a very significant number can be helped by uh, TMS. Uh, it's, a sh it's, it's like the cognitive therapy in a sense that does not a long-term thing. And, treatments, you know, last in the periods of, what I say, one, two, three months. Um, and they are not 100% side effect free either. They can produce headaches and dizziness and other things. But, they, but there is a clear group of people who have not done well with antidepressants who then have their depressions improved with TMS. And I, I think it's a, a very promising kind of therapy. And although not side effect free, is relatively benign uh, kind of therapy and uh, a good one for somebody who has not had very good luck with medicines. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because, um, you know, obviously for me personally, right, like I, I struggled with taking medicines. I still struggle with that. Um, I have a hard time taking an ibuprofen. Um, and it's, it's good to know. Um, so, this, so the TMS, is that something that's fairly new? That's relatively new, but there are clinics all over the country now that offer it. Uh, the only 
thing I would mention, though, is again, it's not the first thing to jump to when you have depression. It's it's something to think about if you've tried therapy and tried antidepressants and they don't seem to be helping. That's the point to think about TMS. Yeah. So, so Dr. Mendelson, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this thing up uh, real 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 quick here. Uh, just I just have one more um, one more question that maybe we could touch on. Um, for the, for the person out there that still suffers or may not know, you know, what they're going through, um, mentally or, or physically, and, you know, they've heard the word depression and they may say, oh yeah, you know, like I'm just depressed. So what's, what's some, some symptoms that one may see, um, that can be caused by depression? Like what, what is it that we need to look for to realize that, yeah, we have really um, reached a depressant or a depressive state. Well, there's a whole constellation of things that all tend to occur together. Not only the depressed mood and fatigue, uh, trouble sleeping, um, aches and pains, uh, changes in weight, uh, changes in appetite, uh, feelings of guilt, um, or worthlessness, or hope, hopelessness, um, a sense of having a decreased ability to, to function, to just not be able to do things as well as one used to. And actually one that I think I really didn't mention before, which is a lack of pleasure, uh, being in a situation where certain things used to be fun and now they're just not fun anymore. So when these all occur together as a package, that's when to think about major depressive disorder. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I definitely, uh, you know, through through my struggles, um, luckily, you know, today um, it's a little bit easier for me, but I've, I've most definitely suffered from, from a lot of those things that you bring up. Um, so Dr. Mendelson, you, you have most recently um, – You've wrote two books in the past, you know, year or so. Is that correct? Uh, that's right, Seth. Um, one of them is called Understanding Antidepressants, and the other is called Understanding Sleeping Pills uh, by me, Wallace B. Mendelson, M-E-N-D-E-L-S-O-N, and they're both available on Amazon. Uh, the things I would mention to you is that they are they are written for folks you know who do not have technical backgrounds. They're they're designed to be understandable and, and easily read. Um, they're lavishly illustrated, and the whole goal is to help a person um, who might consider taking antidepressants or sleeping pills. Uh, learn about them so that they can make better decisions when they're working with their doctor. Yeah, no. And I, I, I greatly appreciate you writing these books, Dr. Mendelson. There's, you know, there's a tons of people out there. Um, me being one of them, you know, that w we just don't, we don't understand a lot of the, um, you know, clinical explanations of, of medications. Um, and I think both of these books, um, you know, bring that, bring that down a little, uh, uh, to a lower level to where the normal person, just like me or the person that, um, you know, suffers from alcoholism, depression, that doesn't have a medical background, um, is able to get some in more information. So if you wouldn't mind one more time, Dr. Mendelson, where could people find more information about you? And then also, uh, where could they get these books at? On Amazon. My name is Wallace B. Mendelson, M-E-N-D-E-L-S-O-N. Um, and there's also an author's page on Amazon about me that talks about my background, my interest in writing these books, and what they're about. Um, there, I also have two short videos on YouTube uh, that are only about three minutes long that describe these books. and. Uh, you'd get a chance to see me and uh, hear my voice and such. 
And um, on YouTube, there again, under my name, Wallace Mendelssohn, but also you can just look for um, understanding antidepressants. And I also have another YouTube one about sleep that's called The Science of Sleep, uh, both on YouTube. Dr. Mendelssohn, it's been an honor uh, to be able to talk to you tonight. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for reaching out to that sober guy. Um, Like I said, it's been an honor. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you and and I've learned from you. So thank you very much, Seth. Awesome. Awesome. That's good stuff. And to you, the listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in and thank you for supporting the show. Much love, respect, and keep your blood clean.